and welcome to Accented Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. At the Socialism 2022 conference held in September 2022 in Chicago, Dr. Liat Ben Moisha gave a talk titled Disability, Madness, Liberation, Deinstitutionalization and Prison Abolition. Prison abolition and massive decarceration are often portrayed as utopian ideals, but few have grappled with the fact that it has happened already. The history of the deinstitutionalisation movement from psychiatric hospitals and residential institutions shows the limits of rights and legal discourses, as well as hope for abolition of carcerality in our time. Today's episode of Accent of Women and continuing next week, Dr. Liat Ben Moisha's keynote address on the intersections of disability justice and prison abolition. A little bit about me. Um, thank you, Eric, for that introduction. Um, I come from really the field of disability studies, the disability culture. Um, disabled people are my people. I think it's important to say that, you know, where are we coming from? Um, I'm also an abolitionist and a lot of what I try to do is to bridge <laughs> those two things. Um, so a lot of my work is really um, to show to disability activists and disabled people, mad people, um, what to understand abolition better and also to understand the uh, critiques and the problems with making demands to the state to fix problems that the state made. Um, and then to um, people who are more kind of abolitionist or leftist or revolutionaries, I try to show how disability is a political and potentially politicizing uh, entity. So what I'm gonna do today, 40 minutes uh, is a really long time, so I'll do various things. One is, um, welcome. Um, one is really gonna start with very kind of basic things. So if you're very familiar with disability culture um, and disability justice, then you know just scribble on your phone for like seven minutes. But uh, that's gonna be the first part. Um, and the point is really that I wanna make is why should you care about disability and madness in your organizing and analysis? Um, and then I'm going to talk about deinstitutionalization as a precursor to abolition or deinstitutionalization as abolition. And I'm going to give an example of labor organizing and then some lessons from deinstitutionalization that uh, are kind of like take, take home uh, lessons about abolition. And then I'm going to end with a brief lessons about right now. Um, because a lot of my work is more historical about 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, 60s, 50s, so on. But I'm going to end with one now. All right, so first of all, I thought I would start very basic. Um, and again, apologies for those that this is familiar to. But um, there's various ways to understand disability and madness, and I want to be very clear when I say disability and madness, what that means. Um, so first of all, uh, you know, the common understanding of disability is that it's uh, medical, it's something that the doctor prescribed, something that gets you like uh, disability benefits, um, um, something that uh, can be fixed or should be fixed, uh, something that should be treated, reduced, etc. 
it's a lack of an ability, it's some kind of a deficit, and it's definitely an individual matter, right? Like, what's your disability? How did you become disabled? Um, and so on. But the way that we understand disability, we, uh, in disability studies, med studies, uh, people who are um, part of disability cultures, part of um, med pride, we understand disability as um, something that's socially constructed. So it's something that derives its meaning from historical, cultural, political, and economic structures. It's not something that's inherent in people's bodies and minds. Nobody has a disability. Really important to say, nobody does. Um, the disability comes from interaction with the environment. People have impairments. Um, which are also, by the way, not necessarily deficit-driven and all that. But people are disabled by environment, whether the environment is attitudinal, uh, economic, um, physical environments, and so on. And so people are, are disabled by uh, social circumstances. Also, which, by the way, I mean, it's really important to say that the state defines disability. Um, the state defines disability often very loosely to marginalize people, but then very uh, rigidly if you ask for resources, right? So this is just one example. You can see how disability defined a person is still exactly the same, has the same impairment or has the same um, you know, mental difference and so on. But the way that we define disability um, changes over time and space. But I, I think a lot of you know this, but also, <laughs> Disability and madness are an identity, and they have a culture, and they're a political identity, and I think it's very important to say this in socialism. It's a political identity. Now, not everybody that's disabled or deaf, deaf with a capital D, um, or mad, mad as in um, crazy, uh, not just angry, um, not everybody identifies or is politicized as disabled. I mean, I was disabled for a really long time before I was politicized as disabled. Um, and I think that that's also by design, like any other identity and consciousness, you know, not uh, everybody's a feminist, not everybody is a leftist and so on. And I think that, um, again, there's a lot of barriers to identification with disability and to understanding disability culture. So why should you think of yourself um, as, as disabled or why should people kind of politicize themselves um, if they um, are disabled, but not necessarily, you know, they shy away from that as a categorization or identity. Um, and I think a lot of us think about disability as, uh, you know, there's a lot of oppression in relation to that, but it's also generative, it's productive, it's a way to view the world. It produces knowledge and produces particular uh, ways of resistance. But also, of course, it's... Um, it's a source of both pride and oppression. And I wanted to uh, read to you a definition of ableism uh, that I'm gonna kind of build on. Um, this is from T.L. Lewis. Um, and this definition really is built with uh, disabled people of color kind of coalitionally. And this is a quote, um, ableism is a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, and fitness. 
And at the end of the definition, which is much longer, um, TL says, you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. This is not to say we're all disabled. Please don't say that. It's not true. And also, uh, we all experience ableism. Also, uh, not necessarily true. You, we, can, we can all experience ableism, but we don't experience it equally, just like we all not experience sexism equally and so on. There's like a power differential um, here. But what I wanted to um, really highlight here is that productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, fitness, um, they all are also related to um, the construction of, um, um, again, to labor extraction um, and so on. And, and a lot of these things are also built on, of course, colonialism and anti-blackness and so on. So what I want to talk about today is a particular form of resistance to uh, incarceration, a particular form of abolition that comes from the knowledge of mad and disabled people, and that is uh, deinstitutionalization um, more kind of specifically. Um, I just wanted to say before I delve into that for the next, um, you know, about half an hour or so, um, that the, this also comes from an understanding of disability justice, and disability justice is not the combination of those two words disability and justice. Um, disability justice is a particular framework. Um, it's a particular framework that comes from the lived experience of disabled people of color, on, of queers with disabilities, uh, trans and gender non-conforming people with disabilities, um, indigenous people with disabilities, and so on. And it's a framework that emphasizes things like intersectionality, cross-movement solidarity, and is a very strong anti-capitalist um, politic at its heart. So it's not something that's kind of added to it. This is what disability justice means. People who don't know what it is, um, you should look into sin's, sin's invalid definition of disability justice. The thing that's really important um, for me to say that here is that disability justice brings to our analysis of incarceration and understanding that incarceration happens in more than prisons and jails. Incarceration is a process that also happens uh, in nursing home. It happens um, in residential facilities for people with intellectual disabilities. It happens in psychiatric hospitals. Um, and this is not to say that psychiatric hospitals are like prisons, but they are all um, carceral spaces. They're different, but they're all carceral spaces. It's also to say that medicalization is another uh, conduit to um, both criminalization and to incarceration. And to say that the carceral state and the therapeutic state are incredibly tied together. And I hope you'll see that um, throughout the talk. So what I bring to this, and then I'll just give you kind of the rest of the time is like the example. Um, what I bring to this is what I called a CRIP, um, C-R-I-P, CRIP or Mad of Color Critique of Incarceration and Abolition. And what I mean by, um, you know, CRIP is a reclaimed term by people with disabilities. Um, mad uh, is a reclaimed term, just like queer is a reclaimed term. And what this CRIP or Mad of Color Critique does is that it's not just about people who identify or are even politicized as disabled people of color who are caught up in the system of policing and incarceration, but it's also um, about 
centering the experiences of disablement and ableism in criminal, racial, and social justice movements. And here I want to pause and say that uh, ableism, uh, labor extraction, carcerality, police, policing uh, were and are constructed on anti-blackness and on colonialism, even though they don't only operate on the bodies of people of color. And this is why this is a crip or mad of color critique. Um, it's bigger, um, of course, um, than particular populations, but it's definitely something that was constructed on anti-blackness, uh, ableism, and colonialism. So again, um, my example is deinstitutionalization as a knowledge of resistance, deinstitutionalization as abolition. And the reason why I think this is really important, and this is the kind of quote-unquote cultural competency that I want to bring to you today, the cultural competency of mad and disabled people's knowledge, is that uh, when we, um, a lot of us who are abolitionists, um, talk about abolition, people say it could never happen, or it can't happen now, or if it happens, it will happen in like Sweden or Norway. People always say Norway, Sweden. Um, but surely not in the US, right? Surely not now, not in the system that we have now, capitalism and all that, uh, racism. But it already happened. Spoiler. Um, so abolition, this is like my whole point, um, one of my points for today, abolition already happened. Um, and it happened in the form of the closure of large state institutions for people who are disabled. So I define the institutionalization in three ways. One is the transition of people with psychiatric or intellectual or developmental or other disabilities from state institution and hospitals into community living, right? Where did people end up? It's also the closure of these facilities, right? So abolition is about building, absolutely, but it's also about shutting shit down. And this is, you know, part of the definition of the institutionalization. But what I add to that is that the institutionalization is not just a process, not just something that happened, um, but it's a, a logic, it's a framework, it's a movement. But instead of learning from the lessons of deinstitutionalization for abolition, it is often blamed for the rise in incarceration. Um, and in, in my book and a lot of my work, um, I try to uh, you know, push against that. Um, just to say very briefly, the deinstitutionalization was not the culprit in the rise of incarceration and the crisis of mental health in prison. Um, Again, spoiler alert, the crisis of mental health in prison happens because of prison. Um, and people who are quote unquote homeless or housing insecure, and you know, we know this kind of like re revolving door story, right? Like people exited psychiatric institution, they, happened, they went on, um, you know, on the streets and then they ended up in prisons and in jails. This is not an accurate story of how, first of all, deinstitutionalization happened. And secondly, it blames the institutionalization for really big structural issues, like the complete annihilation of affordable, accessible housing at exactly the same time that money started going to corrections. Um, so this is why we see a rise in incarceration. This is why we see um, also uh, a decimation of the welfare state, because those happened exactly at the same time. Um, what we call Reaganomics and later on neoliberalism, this is what we're talking about. So blaming the institutionalization for that also diverts attention from this 
basically state abandonment, as uh, Ruthie Gilmore calls it. By painting the institutionalization as the culprit, um, it also um, leaves the disabling effect of incarceration itself intact. Like we don't critique the fact that the reason why there's so many disabled and uh, crazy people, people who experience mental health crisis in prison is because of prison. It's because of jail, it's because of incarceration itself, it's because of trauma, it's because of things like um, um, strip searches, which are nothing but basically sexual assault that happened to people day in and day out. I could give more examples, but I don't want to trigger people. But prisons, um, jails, very disabling, very maddening. And if we blame the institutionalization, we don't actually get to the root of the problem here. Um, another thing, well, let me move on to like my kind of uh, second example here. So in 2012, this is for people who are Chicago, um, um, people who might remember this. In 2012, the governor of uh, Illinois at the time, uh, Pat Quinn, announced the closure of a variety of carceral facilities. Um, so this was the um, fruits of, of fighting for deinstitutionalization in the state of Illinois. He announced he's going to close two developmental centers, um, psych hospitals, two juvenile correction facilities, women's prisons, and uh, TAMS, the only supermax prison in Illinois. And although, although this was driven by a larger policy, uh, the plan to close down these facilities also came as a result of really targeted activism. So um, clap yourself in the room if you were a part of that. Um, the problem, one of the issues was though that a lot of the people who were part of this organizing didn't really kind of talk to each other. So the institutionalization activists and people who do anti-prison work often don't uh, talk to each other. So one of the examples that I want to uh, bring to you is the example of fighting against um, this anti-closure uh, arguments and fighting for it together. So uh, who do you think resists? So who do you know if you were a part of that struggle? Um, who resists the closure of carceral facilities like prisons and um, psychiatric hospitals? Who's against it? Unions. Guards. Unions. Guards, unions. You can just speak, I'll, I'll revoice. Experts. Experts. Politicians with special interests. Fascists, <laughs> Fascists police. Insurance oh, insurance companies. Pharmaceuticals. Some mental health providers. Great, so these are the people, by great I mean awful, but these are the kind of main uh, people, and those are people that, that resist both the closure of prisons and um, disability institutions, it's people who have kind of an economic interest in it. Um, so it's unions, workers, people with economic stake, politicians. In the arena of uh, disability, uh, unfortunately, it's also parents. Um, parents for people with disabilities, especially intellectual disabilities, some of them are very much against the closure of institutions. Um, I'll get to that a little bit later. So. Um, there's a lot of differences between prisons and institutions, but when you go to rallies against closure, which I have, um, of these various carceral facilities, 
um, the, the picture is very similar. It's people usually mobilized by the union, um, and they are, um, have signs that say something like save blah, blah, blah facility, um, you know, something about um, jobs, something about safety always, something about safety or something about danger. Um, and the, the safety in disability arenas is often the safety of the people inside, right? Like they will not be safe on the outside. Um, if this institution closes, they will die on the streets or they will die in whatever the community. Um, but uh, in prison, it's usually the safety of the people on the outside, right? Like we can't release dangerous people. It's also about the safety of the workers often. Um, and there's also a lot of discourse around choice in home. Like don't, in, especially in the disability arena, don't close my home. And often the place is called something, something home, like nursing home or um, convalescent home and so on. So this uh, issue of um, uh, closure is a lot of around notions of choice, notions of home, notions uh, of labor, and a lot, of course, about the political economy of incarceration itself, because institutions and prisons are seen as an engine of economic growth. They're seen as sites of employment, which is why there's a lot of um, resistance from union, of course, both AFSME, um, AFSCME, um, and the police and prison officer union and you know, in that regard, um, uh, James Kilgore, who's a longtime uh, abolitionist um, and formerly incarcerated activist, um, I don't know if he's here, but um, he asks whether or not the task of a union is to represent the interest of the members or the working class more generally. And I think this is a very big question for guard unions um, and unions in uh, disability institutions as well. So of course, despite the opportunity to create coalition building between labor movements, disability rights movement, uh, prison. It's often the case that union represent one of the staunchest critiques against uh, abolition or closure of uh, prisons and institutions. And in relation to deinstitutionalization, for example, um, AFSCME, um, I'm sure you all know, it stands for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employee Union. Um, in the 70s, they were really big uh, against deinstitutionalization, and they still are. Um, and they wrote these reports and um, um, got ads in uh, the radio. Remember the radio? Yeah, the thing before Spotify. Yeah, you know, um, really like they took up space uh, and time and money to show um, how deinstitutionalization means dumping people in the streets um, and how people are going to end up like in jails. So um, remember what I said earlier about this kind of like false narrative about blaming deinstitutionalization. It started, you know, it didn't start, but it was spread by stuff like this. So just to kind of give you a heads up. Um, but moving on more like to today, um, the, the interest to keep these places open is of course economical, but it's also often couched in terms of um, the best interests of, of the people, especially in disability arena, where the impetus is not just to work, but the impetus um, or what workers are told in these spaces is that they also need to care, right? These are called um, you know, care facilities. 
And so it's really important to also think about the effective, with an A, the effective economy of care, not just the kind of political economy of care. I don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but um, a lot of people write about the effective economies of care. Um, the reason why I'm saying effective with an A is because it's about uh, eliciting these, um, you know, kind of emotional registrars. Um, and particularly, you know, thinking about who does the caring. So in order to understand the resistance to closure of carceral um, places, it's important to understand the differences and similarities between employees who work in these spaces. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for Illinois, just as an example, correctional officers make an average of $27 um, an hour while home health aides, psychiatric aides, uh, nursing assistants, orderlies make between 11 and 14 an hour. So this is not the same. Um, the stakes are not the same in these two facilities. The benefit for keeping institutions and prisons open is, of course, economic, but there's a lot of difference, especially in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender, as well as pay rate in terms of employees. In addition, the discussion about unions um, and their resistance to closure of carceral spaces often paints the working class in very masculine terms. You know, we've seen uh, in our heads guards, um, prison guards, um, union leaders. And although that is not true to all carceral facilities, um, the um, and, and this is, again, this is not true to all carceral facilities if we add disability institutions into the mix. That was Dr. Liet Ben Moisha's keynote address on the intersections of disability, justice, and prison abolition at the Socialism 2022 conference held in Chicago in September 2022. Join me next week for the conclusion of that speech. But that's all we've got time for on today's Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Music